A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. On today's show... Camilla Shamsi on her new novel, Best of Friends. Camilla Shamsi is the author of seven previous novels, including Home Fire, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction and was long listed for the Man Booker Prize, and Burnt Shadows and A God in Every Stone, which were both shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. A fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and one of Granta's best of young British novelists. She grew up in Karachi and now lives in London. And today we're going to talk about Camilla's latest novel, which is Best of Friends. Camilla, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Delighted to be back. So tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe Best of Friends. Best of Friends is a novel that looks at the particular nature of childhood friendship and what happens when it meets a changing world. So, you know, our childhood friends are the friends we made at a point almost before we had character in some cases. You know, I mean, the the friends in my novel, Zara and Mariam, have been friends since they were four years old and they don't really remember why or how they became friends. And there's a certain point in their life when we meet them and they're 14 and, and what matters is their shared love of George Michael. But there are many differences in their worldviews. And the second half of the novel takes us up to near the present day. They're in their 40s. They're living in London. They have very different relationships to power and to the world. And it becomes impossible to ignore the differences between them. So We'll talk about the two friends, one after the other. Tell us something about um, Zara Ali, first of all. Who is she? So Zara, when we first meet her, is diligent and rather ambitious 14-year-old. She goes to a private school, Karachi's most exclusive private school, where there are a number of people, including her best friend Mariam, who are belong to a sort of, let's say, a different part of the middle class to her. They're upper middle class and they're very well connected and very well off. And her family has come from a more modest background. Her mother's a school teacher, now a school principal, and her father was a cricket journalist, but has recently started to host a very popular cricket talk show, and their finances have sort of moved up in the world. 
And she just wants to get away from Karachi, you know, which to her is this really tedious place that has a military dictatorship and her life is spent in books and movies, dreaming of elsewhere and this glittering future she can have. But the other thing that's really significant in her life is her absolute best friend, Mariam, who, as I said, inhabits this world that in some ways she does covet, in other ways she's quite repulsed by because, you know, her family also has a very deep set of political views, which is to do with opposing dictatorship and being in favor of freedom of the press and democracy and things like that. And she sees this other world her best friend inhabits, which is about connections and power and what you can get away with. And that does really sort of repulse her, even as she's intrigued by it. So tell us something about Mariam Khan, then, who is her best friend and her family. So Mariam is the daughter and granddaughter of a very wealthy family. They have a leather making factory and um, are also sort of, you know, from her mother's side, they're very um, high born and very socially connected. And she grows up thinking because she is the eldest and only grand, well, she's the eldest grandchild, there are no sons in the family. And so she thinks she's going to inherit this huge business, unusually so for a woman, but not unheard of. And she lives in a world where, you know, she quickly learns that that what you care about is your family, your friends, and your business. And it's a cruel and unjust world. So you must make the most of whatever power and connection you have to look out for your own interests. Tell us something about the bond that these two girls have then. You said, you know, they've been friends so long that they don't, they don't really remember why they became friends in the first place. But what is it that keeps them together? Well, I mean, it is one of the mysteries of childhood friendship. What does keep people together when they're very different? It's that they have always been friends. They trust each other. They love each other. They know each other's secrets. They spend a lot of time in each other's households growing up. So they, you know, are sort of that member. They're not a member of the family, but they witness the family. Uh, They know what it is for the other person to be part of the family. They both really like things about being in each other's house and also really don't want it for themselves. And, you know, they do both love George Michael. And that seems very important when they're young. But it is really the friendship itself. It's such a long thing that there's a certain point that the reason for the friendship is the friendship. So let's talk about what 1988 in Karachi would have been like in the number of ways. And and I presume, first of all, let's say that these girls are roughly contemporary with yourself. Yeah, they're one year younger than me. So I was 14 and and they're 14. And I really don't remember why they're younger, but there was once a reason. But So let's talk about what life was like for a teenage girl in Karachi in 1988. Were you also a a consumer of Jackie Collins and George Michael? Absolutely. I mean, I very much gave them my pop culture references over there. If you start off 1988, you're sort of 11 years into a military dictatorship. If you're 14 or 15, you don't remember anything else. And it's a dictatorship where there's, you know, one state channel. You know, the news you get is, is very controlled. There's not a lot going on culturally, because as we know, dictatorships don't like culture. There's a lot of cricket because the dictatorship does like cricket and the nationalism that can be attached to that. So everyone, boys and girls, everyone's watching cricket. And there's also a sense in Karachi, there's quite a lot of violence and unrest. And if you're a girl in particular, you are made to feel that the outdoors is really unsafe. So you move from you know, your house to a car to a friend's house 
to a school. And, and I am talking about a very specific social strata here. You know, this is sort of upper middle class Karachi. And you spend much of your life, you know, watching movies on pirated video and reading books, if you're that way inclined, which one of them is and the other one isn't, listening to music and spending time with your friends. And then August happens. And in August, the military dictator Zia al-Haq is killed. And this world that you've seen and known your whole life suddenly turns and you hear people talking about the fact that there will be democratic elections. And not only will there be democratic elections, but that Benazir Bhutto, who is at this point a 35-year-old woman who has spent a number of years in exile during the military dictatorship and whose father was hanged by the military dictatorship, that this 35-year-old woman is going to win the popular vote. You know, I didn't believe it at the time. When I was 15, it just seemed so inconceivable that a thing like that could happen because I had lived my whole life within one kind of world and I didn't believe another kind of world was possible. And so then the last few months of 1988 are very different to the first few months because there's this growing feeling of celebration and euphoria. And there are political rallies, which were also unheard of, and parties. And the election campaign songs, both for Benazir's party and for the MQM, which is Karachi's biggest party, these become the most popular songs for everyone to dance to at dance parties. You know, forget Madonna, forget George Michael. It's all about election campaign songs and the hope and the joy that they bring. And, and finally, in December, there's that one night where I remember staying up later than I'd ever stayed up before watching election results come in, and it just becomes clearer and clearer. Not only that Benazir is going to win, but that the religious parties who sided with the dictatorship have been absolutely rejected by the electorate. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary time to be alive and young. And yet immediately that the inauguration of Benazir Bhutto happens, there's an incident in the book that that happens to the two girls. And while we don't want to necessarily go into too many details, tell us what you can about what happens to the girls. So here they are, they're 14 years old. Benazir has just come to power and they believe that anything is possible. And more specifically, that anything is possible for girls. And in one way, they have a reason to believe that. But the truth is they are still 14-year-old girls in a deeply misogynist society. And none of the rules have actually changed for them. And they discover this one evening when they, they get into a car with the wrong boys. And it's one of those moments which I think, which certainly every woman I've spoken to about has said, oh, yes, I know that moment where things start off and it's fine and it's fun. And then suddenly something switches and you feel terrified and you realize your vulnerability as a young girl. And the contrast between that and what is going on in the political sphere where a woman is now the head of state is sort of very stark to them and I would hope to the readers. But just to finish the um, the karate section on a, on a lighter note then, you have already mentioned it, but I did want to talk about cricket and what it means, what it meant to people. I mean, still, obviously now, but particularly at that time. Zara's father, as you said, is a cricket commentator, cricketer, journalist. Um, but Mariam herself is a, is a very good cricketer as well. Tell us a bit more about what cricket meant in those days. So cricket was the one thing that allowed you to really feel national pride in Pakistan in, in the 80s. You know, this was a team being led by Imran Khan, um, who was one of the most glamorous figures in the sporting world. It was a team that was doing incredibly well and they had exciting players. And when they played, you could feel proud 
and excited in a way that you didn't about most other things. And what I learned much later was that this was a feeling that the dictatorship really wanted in the country. And so you had more cricket broadcasts than ever before because there was a very specific decision by the government of the time to have as much cricket on TV as possible because if people are watching cricket indoors, they're not protesting outdoors. And if they're feeling a great surge of national pride and well-being, they're more likely to be angry at you know the state of the nation. And so cricket was on all the time and we were all watching it. However, it was mainly the boys who played it. And so Maryam is that exceptional girl. And there were some of them. I had one friend, Sabine, who used to play cricket on the street with the boys. But because cricket, you know, is a sort of outdoor thing and very often gets played on the streets outside people's homes, it was a boy's space. So as girls, you got to be spectators rather than participants in the game. And it's very much part of Mariam's character that she says, no, I'm going to play. But also that her grandfather, who is trying to mold her into a certain kind of human being, says, "Okay, then I'm going to get you the best lessons so you can play with the men and they'll see that you are a leader and someone that they should learn to follow and respect. So, it, it, you know, cricket stands in for all kinds of things. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Camilla Shamsi, and we're talking about her latest novel, Best of Friends. And Camilla, then, the second part of the book is set in 2019, takes place in London. The two friends have found themselves in London for reasons that we, we won't go into. We'll let people discover that for themselves. But let's talk about why 2019, first of all. Honestly, Neil, because I started writing it in 2019, and... I wanted to bring it right up to the present day. And also there were things in there, things that were happening that come into the novel, more things than I actually realized, which we'll get to in a minute. But Zara is the head of the Center for Civil Liberties, which functions much as Liberty, the Civil Liberties Organization does in London. It's just a, a slightly fictionalized version of it. you know. And she's living in a moment where you have a government that's sort of riding roughshod over over laws and procedures and, and has a very strong anti-migrant ethos that is very central to her working life. And Mariam, on the other hand, becomes a political donor. And, and I'll say this, you know, I started writing that when the stories of political donations were relatively small news stories. I mean, I stumbled upon them. And I was interested because I knew with Mariam that she had grown up in this world of contacts and favors. And money making things easier. And then I read a piece about these sort of dining clubs for political donors to the Tory party. And I thought, oh, she would look at that and say, oh, I recognize this. This is another version of the kind of thing I grew up with in Karachi. So let me enter into that world. And of course, as I'm writing the book, um, you know, I'd invented a club called The High Table and, and people are, you know, have to pay 200,000 pounds to the Tory party to um, become part of it. And I was on a late draft of the book when the story broke of a thing called the Leaders Group, where you have to pay £250,000 and get all kinds of access in return. So it's an odd thing sometimes how the fiction you're writing, you know, gets superseded by events. And she's a tech entrepreneur and is the major product of hers that, that features in the book is is something called image, like a, I guess, a sort of Instagram derivative, but particularly one that enables facial recognition, which is something that, that Zara in her work is particularly incensed by. Yeah, it's facial recognition. It has very sophisticated facial tagging features, uh, which means it can be used for facial recognition. And, and Zara, of course, to whom, you know, facial recognition is all about the surveillance state is incensed. And Mary is saying, people have an opt-out option. People don't opt out. You know, this is not like the surveillance state we grew up in where we had no option. People are choosing. They want to be tagged. They want to be recognized. And of course, it puts them on very different sides of the argument. The start of the of the second section features basically like two magazine profiles or newspaper profiles of the of the two friends. And in in Zara's, there's like a sort of tabloidy headline which where she's supposed to have said that Britain is on the road to dictatorship, which in the article is sort of thrown back into that is, you know, that's quite a mad thing to say when you grew up in under, you know, General Zia, an actual dictatorship. And, and you know, her retort is that, yeah, but when you grow up under an actual dictatorship, it's obvious. But, you know, when you think you're, you live in a democracy, you don't tend to notice the way that your rights are gradually chopped away at. Yes, I mean, you know, I've been spending time in Britain for a number of years. And I remember post 9-11 and 7-7 being genuinely shocked 
by how many civil liberties were being rolled back in the name of security, because this is something that if you grew up in a dictatorship, it is classic dictatorship move to say you can either have civil liberties or you can have security. You can't have both. So that for me was the beginning of the moment where my sort of antenna went up on on what's happening. And, and we have seen, I mean, I don't think Britain is on the road to a dictatorship, but I think democracy is in big trouble. And I think democracy can be manipulated and it can be undermined in all kinds of ways. You know, at the moment, as we're recording this, Neil, it's, you know, we're hearing about people getting arrested or threatened with arrest for protesting at the Queen's funeral. Now, you may, you may say, well, that's bad form. You shouldn't be protesting at this moment. But you can't say it's illegal. You know, I mean, the Met Police has had to issue a statement to its officers to say people have the right of protest. Now, what world are we living in where the Met Police has to actually say this to its own officers? You know, it does make you worry about the kind of assumptions that are going on in society and among law enforcement people and among politicians about what are the rights of the British people. And I mean, that's before we even get into what are the rights of refugees and migrants who are coming in, which is a whole other can of worms. And you mentioned that both in the book and obviously in real life, there are governments that have taken a a particularly anti-migrant stance. Now, I remember only a few years ago when we talked about home fire and that story was predicated on, you know, what actually seemed like quite speculative at the time, which was that a, a Muslim man would become the home secretary and the sacrifices he would have to make to, to be in that position. And now we're in a world only a few years later where, you know, the Conservative Party have, have presented us with a, a string of um, evil home secretaries from immigrant backgrounds, mm-hmm. which obviously is, is the great irony in the fact that this is a government that is, um, you know, so predicated on opposition to migrants, isn't it? I'm not, I don't think it's irony. I think it's strategic. You know, it's much harder to throw charges of racism at someone who isn't white. So I don't think there's any irony in it. And I also think that if you are, I mean, this is part of what went on in Home Fire, is that if you aren't white, you feel you have to prove your anti-migrant credentials even more. So you're taking an even harder line to prove you're not going to be soft on migrants and you don't, that you're your interests don't lie with those people. So that's why you're seeing so many very, very hardline politicians, hardline on on migrant politicians, whose family stories actually should align them more closely with people who are coming to Britain to make new lives because they're in some kind of need. And that indeed is really one of the themes of this book, Best of Friends, as well, in that, you know, this is the the experience of two different people who are taking different paths in terms of the experience of being upper middle class, successful immigrants to the UK, one who is very combative and understands that there is fights to be had, and the other one who basically wants to be accepted by the establishment in the new country. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even say that Mariam wants to be accepted. Mariam sees how she can gain an advantage. You know, so it's not, you know, there's nothing in her that says, oh, please, you know, I want you to accept me. She's looking at it and saying, right, I can get a lot out of you if I give you money. And if I sort of present myself as, you know, the good Asian migrant, it can be mutually beneficial to both of us. She's very much, very much taking that view of, you know, again, which she grew up with, forget fighting for strangers. You're never going to win. 
and there's no point to it. So look to your own interests, whether those are business interests, familial interests, or the interests of your friends, and forget about the rest. Before we finish, I'm going to ask you to read a bit of Best of Friends for us, if you would. But before we do that, and I guess with the caveat that we are recording this a couple of weeks before the book comes out, and therefore before it's going to be broadcast. But over the last couple of weeks, obviously, we've seen the terrible things that are going on in Pakistan with the floods. And I know yourself and other friends of the show, like you know Fatima Bhutto and um, Mosin Hamid, have been active on social media trying to raise awareness and raise money, of course. So is there anywhere that people who are listening to this can go to if they, if they want to find out more or help? First of all, thank you, Neil, for bringing this up. You know, it's sort of the scale of what's happening is really beyond what I can imagine. It's 33 million people have been affected by the floods. An area the size of all of Britain is underwater. And it's something that really isn't in the news as much as it should be. But, you know, DEC has launched an appeal. It's a number of UK charities that have come together and have launched an appeal and you can give to them and the money will go to the best places. So DEC, please donate anything you can. And and I, I think it's also worth saying, Neil, that I don't think this is something we should look at as, oh, that poor nation over there and these terrible things have happened. Because it is unmistakable that this is part of the climate catastrophe we're living under. And that if we're going to talk about ironies here, it's not even irony, it's one of the tragedies of what's happening right now, is the country's most responsible for carbon emissions and related problems are the first world. You know, Pakistan is very, very far down the list, and yet South Asia has been suffering disproportionately. And so I think we need to start talking about this, not in terms of financial aid or charity, but really responsibility and obligation and reparation. To finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, of course. First day back at school. The sky heavy with monsoon clouds, the schoolyard clustered with students within striding distance of shelter, the keeker trees planted along the boundary wall or the neem tree partway up the path from gate to school building, the many bougainvillea framed doorways carved into the building's yellow stone facade, the area of the playing field beneath the jutting balconies on the first and second floor. Only a few boys, with daring to prove, roamed the most exposed parts of the yard, shirt sleeves rolled up, hands in pockets. Zara, standing beside the archway that housed the brass bell, was using her height to look over the heads of all the girls and most of the boys. Searching. The school day hadn't officially started yet, but students in grey and white uniforms were already resettling into their formations from the previous term. The cool kids, the thuggish boys, the couples, the judgmental girls, the invisible boys. Zahra had invented these categories after watching a string of teen-centred Hollywood movies on pirated videos, but it did little to make up for the inadequacy of Karachi's school life. Without detention, how could there be the breakfast club? Without a school prom, how could there be pretty in pink? Without the freedom required to make truancy possible, how could there be Ferris Bueller's day off? But the one area where the failure was that of the movies, not of Karachi, was when it came to friendship. It was almost always a subplot to romance, never the heart of a story. Except the outsiders. But that was boys, which meant it was really about how girls caused trouble and led to fights and burning buildings and death. 
From where she stood, Zara had a clear view of the school gate. For most of the day, buses and rickshaws and vans and other aging vehicles clogged up the streets of Sadar, perhaps heading to Empress Market or the electronic stores that populated the area. But twice a weekday, sleek air-conditioned joys joined in the melee to ferry students to and from the most prestigious of Karachi schools. There she was. The Mercedes, sleekest of sleeks, drove right up to the gate and Mariam stepped out and walked into the school grounds. A different Mariam, a different walk. The plumpness that had been on her face seemed to have descended elsewhere over the course of the summer, though it was hard to know exactly what was going on beneath the sack-like grey camise she was wearing. Mariam stopped to say something to one of the older boys, and as they were talking, tugged at her camise with what was clearly meant to be an absent-minded air. The fabric pulled taut over new breasts, a new waist. The older boy kept on speaking to her as though nothing had happened, but when she walked past him, heading to Zara, he turned to observe her all the way down the length of the path. Other things had changed too. The wavy shoulder-length hair was artfully tousled rather than wild, the messy eyebrows reshaped into two curved lines. But the smile was the same old Mariam smile that greeted Zahra every time Mariam returned from her family's summer trips to London and her outstretched hand held a cassette that was always her belated birthday present to her best friend, a mixed tape that she had recorded off the radio with the best of the London charts. Do you see what's happening to me? she said. Is it your mother or your tailor who's having difficulty accepting it? Zahra said, gesturing to the kameez. Hard to say. Master Saab stitches what he thinks my mother wants. Mother says he's easily offended. We can't go back and say it's all wrong or he'll stop doing our clothes and he's the only one to get my sari blouses right. Adulthood is so complicated. They smiled at each other, confident of the futures ahead of them in which they'd never face such petty dilemmas. They had barely moved on to swapping notes about the summer apart when Saba approached with that smile of hers as if she was holding some forbidden delight in her mouth that she was willing neither to swallow nor to reveal. They knew all of each other's smiles, the three girls. At 14, they were 10 years into what might loosely be called friendship. Though Zahra had recently looked up from a dictionary to inform Mariam that what the two of them had with each other was friendship, and what they had with the other six girls and 22 boys in class was merely propinquity, a relationship based on physical proximity. If you moved to Alaska tomorrow, we'd still be best friend for the rest of our lives, she had told Mariam who was the only person in the world towards whom Zahra displayed extravagant feelings. Now there was Sabah standing in front of them, allowing them to cajole her into giving up the secret which she had just heard from her aunt, Mrs. Hilal, the biology teacher to the rest of them. The school's bomb alarm was going to be complemented with a riot alarm. There would be drills throughout the term to ensure the students didn't confuse the first with the second. You wouldn't want 700 students evacuating the building when they were supposed to be inside with doors and windows firmly shut. The school had never known either bombs or riots, but Sabah conveyed the news of the anticipated disaster and the possible mix-up over alarms with relish. So I've been talking to Camilla Shamsi. We've been talking about her new novel, Best of Friends, which is out now from Bloomsbury. Camilla, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you very much, Neil. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.